Lisa, thanks for coming to State House and um, joining our viewers and listeners to talk about medical cannabis. Um, what I'd like to do is have you talk a little bit about yourself, you know, give me a little bit of your background, uh, how you got involved in the medical cannabis issue, and then maybe get us up to speed on where we are today. Um, because there's been a lot of activity since 2015. And then, you know, we're now right currently in the middle of a legislative session where additional changes are being made. And we can talk about that afterwards. But I want to get people, you know, maybe up to speed on, uh, you know, where we are as we stand right now. Okay, sure. A little bit about me. I'm an attorney. Um, been an attorney for almost 25 years. My background's commercial business litigation. Um, but to talk about how I got into this, we need to back up to when I was a teenager and I volunteered at Texas Children's Hospital for children with terminally ill diseases. And I'm also an artist, so I wanted to be an art therapist for these children. But when I got to the statistics portion of the psych major, I didn't think I could pass that. So I slid on over into English. One thing led to another. Um, again, I didn't want to take the GRE because of the math. So that's how I ended up in law school. And, uh, you know, I'm on the hamster wheel of, you know, commercial litigation and getting pretty burned out by 2015. And that's when I read the Senate bill testimony of mothers in favor of the Texas Compassionate Use Act, which was passed then in, in 2015. And at the time, it was a very limited program just for children practically dying from epilepsy. You had to have two pediatric neuroepidemiologist to concur that all other medications have been tried and weren't successful, brain surgery had been ruled out, and so forth. So it wasn't for a seizure-free seizure quality of life. So the volunteer work is part of what got me interested in this because this was affecting children specifically, was what the statute was about originally. And my own daughter had epilepsy as well. So back in 2006 or so, she's a, a year old or so, I take her to um, Texas Children's and Memorial Harmon, and I said, give me the head of the department. I got them. Um, but I was given conflicting treatment choices, conflicting um, diagnoses. So one of them gave me all the books and binders and said, this is your life now. Um, sorry, your child's not going to be the same after this because of the devastating effect that these drugs have on the development of the brain and the organs. And the other one said, well, this could be a juvenile form that she outgrows, so we could closely monitor it and see what happens. Um, that's what I elected to do. Really scary as a 31-year-old mother yeah. uh, making these choices. And uh, she's 17 now. She got cleared last year. So it was, in fact, a juvenile form. Um, thank goodness. But that showed me that they were just guessing at what her condition was and how to treat it. So when I'm reading about this... Um, this is just 2006, seven, Right, right. Yeah. So this was not even... Cannabis was not even, you know, in yeah. anybody's vernacular yet yeah. at the time. So that's what got me really motivated. Um, when I read this bill, this testimony of the mothers who were faced with leaving their family, communities, churches, schools to seek treatment for their children in another state, or maybe they didn't have the means to do so. So originally, I'd wanted to 
provide a, a women's wellness center for women to come consult about mm-hmm. plant-based medicines. I mean, la- lavender, peppermint, you know, all of them, uh, preventative measures, counseling, um, a lot of really cool things I had in mind for a kind of a rustic treatment center in Western Travis County. But uh, after a bit, I, you know, I, I quit the law firm and I decided this is my calling. This is what I want to follow. Um, what happened to the days of Lincoln when lawyers stood up and used their professions to change the law for the right. better. So I decided someone's got to do it. It'll be me. Um, and so eventually I went out to Colorado in January 15 or 16 to a women's cannabis conference called Women Grow. And there were 1,800 women there from across the country. So that showed me that cannabis as medicine was already a movement sweeping the country. And in fact, it was also already an industry. We only had a couple of legal use states or adult use states at the time. Um, So I I met with some lawyers out there that wanted to get a footprint in Texas. So my first major project was advising LSU on the rollout of Louisiana's medical program, which is unique in the country in that they gave it to the two research universities, LSU and Southern, to grow, extract, and distribute to a par- uh, a pharmacy in each of the uh, parishes. Um, so I had to learn everything A to Z in order to advise them on you know, the legal practicalities, even things like what kind of machinery they wanted to spec out. Um, took them on some backstage tours of grows and facilities in Colorado um, and had to study everything going on at the law at that point because they didn't want to be sued and they didn't want to jeopardize their federal funding. So as a result, they decided to subcontract that out. So I created the application and the scorecard. And that was a really fulfilling, exciting, completely comprehensive um, experience. And so I wanted to keep doing it. So I kept um, doing uh, medical marijuana applications in a lot of the surrounding states. And then um, obviously always advocating at the Capitol to try to improve our medical law. And in 2017, we didn't get any movement to it. So I moved out to Colorado for a couple of years because I wanted to immerse myself in a state where it's legal learn how to solve all those problems and the state federal tension in the law, uh, meet all the players while you still could, learn to spot the snakes. And really the whole point of that was to learn as much as I could to bring it back home to Texas, to represent Texans. And um, so 2019, we do finally get some movement to the law. We get a lot more conditions added and... um, the program starts to grow a little bit, but it is still very, very modest. Um, and then in 2021, there's probably the biggest progress that we've gotten so far because they added cancer and PTSD with no limitations. You don't have to be dying and you don't have to be a veteran. They bumped the THC from 0.5 to 1%. They doubled it. Yeah, well, we can talk about that in a minute. <laughs> I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but they are still able to make some decent milligram doses out of that. But that broadening of the program has resulted in a 10% month after over month increase in the patients. And they also made it a lot easier for doctors to uh, participate. So now you only need one doctor who is a specialist in the area for which he's prescribing, you know, for your condition. Meaning you don't need multiple doctors to give you uh, a prescription. 
for, for lack of a better term, they don't call it a prescription, but. Right. Well, actually it is a prescription, which makes a lot of doctors um, uneasy. And I think that's probably yeah. by design. Um, and then if you talk to the lawmakers, they'll say, oh, well, we address that because prescription is defined in the occupational code as, quote, an entry in the compassionate use registry, not a prescription like on your triplicate pad, <laughs> you yeah, know, right. that you would pick up at a pharmacy. So um, there are a lot more doctors now participating in the program. So if you're a psychiatrist and you treat people with PTSD, that's sufficient. If you're a neurologist and you treat autism, that's sufficient. So they've made it a lot easier um, also for patients to participate too. I've talked to a number of people who are getting medicine for anxiety or depression resulting from the PTSD. So they've gotten you know a little bit looser over time, making it easier for people to participate. In 2021, we almost got chronic pain and 5% THC. Um, chronic pain is the condition that blows open the doors on any state program and makes it viable. Um, and then 5% THC, that improves the medicine for the patients in that they don't have to take so much carrier oil, the higher the right. percentage that they make it. So uh, those got snatched away in about the last 30 minutes of session, but I don't really think it had anything to do with the marijuana law. I thought it had to do more with some broader last-minute you know, political hostage taking, right? Which to me is happens a lot. Yeah, yeah. Which to me is encouraging uh, because it made it all the way through the committee, and you know, we almost got it. And so, uh, Stephanie Click, representative out of Fort Worth, she's always been the author of the original bill and any amendments. So, you know, every session we get at least twenty marijuana bills from yeah. legalization, decriminalization, medical, you know, everything under the sun. But it's only her laws that ever, you know, progress. And so she has filed uh, Bill 1805 right, right. now. Mm -hmm. And it is simply re-urging what she had urged in 2019, which is, again, the chronic pain. And she has defined that as um, a condition for which opioids would ordinarily be prescribed. That's um, okay. That's fair. And... Um, percent again. And one thing that I like is that it allows dishes to add conditions in between sessions so that we're not stranded for two to four years waiting for somebody's new condition to be eligible for treatment. Um, I don't know if I like dishes having that authority. Yeah. I think there's a few other mechanisms, but I'm glad that there is a mechanism being proposed. And, you know, we'll see what some other um, senators and representatives come out with this session. But it's looking really positive. Um, we're also, you know, I think everybody's aware we're pretty surrounded. We've got adult use in New Mexico, a very lax medical use in Oklahoma. Um, Louisiana's program come along quite a bit, but it's not really the type where you can just be passing through Louisiana and, and go to a dispensary. It's not right. like that. And then Mexico <laughs> even is, is legalizing. Um, and then, of course, we're dealing with so many problems at the border, um, it is becoming more and more apparent um, and exposed in the mainstream press about, you know, the damages of the pharmaceuticals and the way they've been overprescribed and the way people become addicted to them. And that obviously has become a huge crisis compounded by all the fentanyl that's being added to things. So not only are you, you know, maybe a, a, an addict to opioids, but you're now you're at risk of accidentally dying at any moment because right. of the things that are, you know, being put in these drugs. So we're really at a 
breaking point now. We've also got a huge mental health crisis, which I thought we've always had, uh, because, you know, we just don't have enough mental health care than anybody could afford or partake in. Um, and then, you know, compounded by the, the pandemic, you know, we're seeing, you know, right. outrageous things going on, on across the country. So I think that, you know, the, Texas is finally observing all of that. And what I really find encouraging are the new public safety commissioners that have been appointed in 2020 and 2021. And they oversee the Department of Public Safety, the DPS, and what they do with the Compassionate Use Program, since they're the agency in charge of it. And they've got a whole new outlook than some of the previous ones did. They take this very seriously. They do believe that it's a medicine and that it needs to be made more available to people in a safe manner. And the folks at the head of the DPS, uh, I mean, in, at the head of this program at the DPS, they're also new compared to in the past, and they've also got a fresh outlook. Yeah. And they also see that, hey, you know, it's inevitable. This program is expanding. Eventually, it's it's going to be a big program. So we need to lay the train tracks now to be ready for that. Um, and that's why license applications are now open. They realize that the current supply hasn't really worked out that well uh, for the patients across Texas, and there needs to be... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some more providers to, to provide a variety of competitively priced medicine in, in different parts of the state. So, you know, Texas is really gearing up. I, I feel like I've heard a little bit of softening rhetoric from the governor as well. Um, I thought it was interesting that when he was running um, in the primaries, I was reading the voter guides and um, Alan West and who was the other guy challenging him? Um. Beto O'Rourke. Oh, no, I mean the Republican. Anyway. Oh, the Republican. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, he was being challenged uh, for not being far right enough. That that was the criticism he was facing in in the primaries. And so when they were asked about marijuana, of course, they said, hell no, which is what Abbott has always said. He's always said, we're a law and order state. not going to have that on my watch. But this time he touted signing the Compassionate Use Act. He said he was open to whom else it might help. And he also said he didn't believe people should be locked up for simple marijuana possession. Right. Well, he has never said anything like that in no, the past. No, that's true. Right. So, you know, I'm really, really optimistic about this session and what we'll be able to accomplish this session for the future of Texas. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that. I think that's, you know, I, I think I, I hear the same things. Um, I know that a lot of patients that we talked to um, over the last year, um, have said that the one thing, and I think you spoke to this just a minute ago, the one thing that they find difficult is because there's not enough providers and the THC level is so low, 1% right mm-hmm. now. It uh, It's expensive and you have to take so much of it. And in certain patients, that's a problem. You know, certain patients that, that can't take a lot of that oil, it's, it causes GI problems. Um, but Probably more often I hear that it's just, you know, if you need more than 1%, you need 5 10% or whatever, you have to buy a lot of it. Right. You're not prohibited from buying a lot of it, it other than the fact that it's prohibitively expensive <laughs> right. when you only have one provider. And so the state, I think, is doing a, a really good job of actually being very thoughtful about putting out uh, the applications that are currently going on right now. 
as we speak, as the session's going on. And, um, and I think they're also trying to figure out the best way to get providers to actually produce enough uh, for and I, and I I think it's part of the application actually now they added it to, that you have to be able to roll it out to the larger patient population as it grows, which wasn't in the original. And you know when it, it's a first time program, I get it. You don't know what you you don't you don't know what you don't know. And um, I think for the for the the DPS, they have such a a, a small group of people. And and don't get a lot of funding to run this program. They've done a really a great job, to be honest. They really have. And um, but I think that this is the session. I agree with you. This is the session for let's open open it up to the things it needs to. I mean, the, and, and it's a medical cannabis program. This is not recreational. You know, we're talking about a, a program strictly for patients that go through a physician to get their medication. And I and I was looking at uh, at. Chairman Click's bill is so it's like not even a full page, but right. but it does it does do the two things she tried to do last time, which is the you know increase the THC level to five percent and uh, and add chronic pain. But I think um, there's a few more things that you know I think that there's probably going to be some debate you know on what that THC level should be uh, and. Really not because they're, as I understand it, and you correct me if I'm wrong, it's not necessarily trying to make it more potent. It's trying to make uh, so that a product can be produced where a patient doesn't have to buy multiple, you know, um, doesn't have to buy a lot of it, I guess is the best way to put it. And they can buy it, you know, a dose at a time that'll that'll treat their uh, condition. Um, and so that was one thing I think that's that's important that trying to get that message across to members that increasing THC level doesn't has nothing to do with recreational use. It's also inside of a program that's that's captured inside of a program that's only for patients that, that get it through their physician. So you're not this doesn't have this doesn't leak outside to to public use. But I think the other issue that we we heard a lot is that because it is so difficult right now to get it uh, for a patient that they um, they're having to seek it other places, which you know the illicit market is is still huge, and we don't want patients to have to go out to the illicit market. So uh, hopefully this session, um, some of those other um, provisions that 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 could be added uh, to the to the legislation will, will allow the program to kind of mature, so that we don't have to come back every session and uh, and and tweak it every single session. Um, there's, there is some talk about too, is if you put increasing conditions and those kind of things into an agency, um, you know, and I've worked with, I've worked with the agencies for my entire career. Um, you know, they wait for some kind of, you know, someone at the cap, they want, they want to get that from the, uh, from the legislators to say, okay, this is something you can do. And then they, they want to produce those rules. I don't generally want to produce, you know, increases or expansions to programs without getting some kind of, uh, you know, legislative approval for that. So that's one thing that probably, um, you know, needs to be discussed as well. What what are some of the other 
provisions that probably should be in maybe this legislation, this this session that um, w- would be helpful, you know, and, and so we don't have to come back again every every two years and do the same thing. It would be helpful if there were more conditions or ideally just take that out of the statute and have agency rule determine that or doctors or or something like that. I think there's an institutional review board in the statute. I'm not sure if that's up and running, but that seems like that could be a mechanism. Um, And then the same thing for the THC percentage, you know, in other states, I'd say a medical dose is average around 20% THC. Okay. But I understand that it is set really low because they want it to be a conservative program, not not a recreational one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that we've, you know, been going along all these years with this tiny bit of THC also to prevent diversion. But I like how some of the southern states have started to go about addressing the diversion concern. So instead of limiting the THC, which limits the uh, medicine that the patients can have, instead they're instituting uh, purchase limits and possession limits. So there's not that much of it out there in circulation. It's pretty much just what you need for your prescription. And so I think that's a, a great way to go about it, to, to meet both concerns, the diversion and the patients. It's not sacrificing the medicine that the patients need. So, well, You mentioned a minute ago that, that every session there's, there's about 20 bills, and you, you hit it right on the nose. I think there's about 23 or 24 bills right now already filed, mm-hmm. and I'm sure, I'm sure we're not done. Is there anything currently out there that's filed that, that um, we should be looking at? That Terry Canales introduced one to um, make the penalty for concentrates, like what you have either in a vape pen or an edible, the same as the punishment for flour. So currently in Houston, for example, you could have four ounces of flour and have a less of a penalty than if you have a single vape pen or a single edible because concentrates are automatically a felony. And as far as an edible, you are charged with the weight of that whole edible. So it could just be hemp. It could just be have a tiny bit of THC, but then you know, then you, you're charged with the entire weight. So I think that that's something that needs to happen make it more unified if it's a simple charge with, you know, no other aggravating factors. So, you know, I think that, and then, uh, was it Moody that has a, yeah. Yeah. So last session, his, Joe de- Moody. yeah, his decriminalization bill went the furthest it ever had. So I think that's got, you know, a better shot this session. It might have some legs, especially like with the governor's softening rhetoric and then, honestly, you know, we've just got this challenge with the fentanyl and, and with the human trafficking and all of this stuff going on at the border that we need to solve in some innovative and creative ways. And I think that there's an opportunity here with the cannabis program. Um, you mentioned the illicit market. I mean, the DEA is reporting on finding marijuana um, sprayed with fentanyl. Yeah. And another thing I saw at the last DPS meetings, you know, if people were sitting at these DPS meetings and they saw how heroic these officers are saving people yeah, in the Rio Grande from, from drowning yeah. and, you know, all these amazing things. Um, and then you also learn a lot more about the crime going on at the border. So at the last meeting, they were showing how these drug mules are coming across the border 
and they've got these enormous bales of marijuana on their backs. Well, what they've started doing was in the center of that bale is where all the fentanyl is because they had been banking on in the past, okay, they would take the bale and just throw it into a big pile of other bales of marijuana and it wasn't, they didn't (laughs) crack it open. But now that they've cracked it open, they say, okay, that's another way that they're smuggling it in now. And and it taints the it taints the the marijuana, and then if someone gets a hold of it in the illicit in the illicit market, then you know you could. I'm sure it would, you know. And we've had stories of cops passing yeah, out exactly. near death just because a little bit of residue gets on their fingers and they inhale it, and and boom, you know, this stuff is instant death. Well, you know, um, I know there's been a, uh, there's been a lot of talk, you know, when I, when I'm talking to uh, to members about this, this issue, you know, one of the things that has come up, and this came up at, at, at DPS as well, is that we don't have a standardized testing for um, for the current products that come out in the, in the in the program, and that it's dependent on each company to test their own and use it, you know, use a, a, a standard lab, right? The, the lab that has to go through background checks and all that. So it's not it's not bogus in any way, but there's not a standardized testing so that you can capture, you know, any of those kind of you know anything that's been uh, that's tainted the the uh, the medical uh, the medical cannabis product. I don't know if there's language out there right now, but I know that that um, I know that Department of Public Safety would love to see something like that. Um, so you know, um, I think I've I've seen some language that speaks to the testing, but I don't know if it actually goes as far enough to actually create a standardized testing you know, lab uh, where they could go out to bid and get somebody to come in and just, and, and be the, be the testing lab for the, the DPS. Um, the other thing that um, this is all part of the program um, that I hear a lot is that providers and in, and after this application period, we're probably going to have, you know, six to 10 new providers, somewhere in that range. Nobody really knows how many additional ones there's going to be. But, you know, currently out of the three that got licenses in 2017, um, there's really only one really producing. Right. So um, there's just not enough to, to satisfy the patient population. We need that, that has to grow. But one of the problems that I know a lot of uh, disabled Texans talk about is, you know, not all of them can drive and get to locations and they live all over the state. And so, you know, if you're located only in, in Austin, Dallas and Houston, you may not capture a large part of the population that needs to, you know, I mean, veterans live all over the state, disabled Texans live all over the state. You know, anybody with these conditions live all over the state. And so I know that the old rules or the current, I shouldn't say old rules, the current rules um, did not allow for product to, to be stored anywhere, but on your main location where you do your cultivation, your processing and your storage. And then everything had to go from there. You transport it there, which again, adds to the, the cost. Um, you got to drive it from, you know, Bastrop or Austin or wherever to someplace out in West Texas. So there was discussion at these DPS hearings, which um, I attended as well. And, and they are they're fascinating to, to watch the whole beginning is all, all about these, these officers and some of the things they've done. They have nothing to do with cannabis, just them doing their job. And it's amazing um, to see um, them, them get the, uh, the accolades for that because um, 
I think most people don't see that. No, I'm, they don't. And, you know, another thing that I didn't realize is that these guys are also on the spot medics. <laughs> I mean, I've, yeah, I've seen yeah. numerous um, awards and it shows, you know, so-and-so tourniqueted this guy's leg and saved it from being amputated and, you know, all kinds of stories like that. Yeah. You don't, you, you don't, unless you're sitting in that room, which there's probably like 40 of us in there at max. Right. Um, little tiny, little, little deal where we, you know, they talk about all the issues that DPS is dealing with. Um, you're not going to hear it. They don't, Put it on TV, you know, unless there's something big. I think when the Uvalde the, the Uvalde testimony was going on, that that was the only time I saw the news cameras there. But um, but I know that they're talking about some rules to allow to remotely store these uh, the medical product in other locations so that it's easier to get to the patient. And those were put on hold while the session's going on, just in case maybe that was dealt with in some of the legislation. I have not seen that in any legislation and I've just, I've read through most of it, but I know that's a big, that's a, that's a big component. And I know that DPS is, is, is trying to get some help on that. So um, I think the I don't know what all the pieces of that would look like, but um, can you give us an idea of what, what remote act or remote app, uh, I would say remote access, remote storage, um, language should look like that would really be helpful, uh, for both the DPS as a law enforcement agency and for the patient. Yeah. It'd be great to know what they are imagining right now and what the, uh, security, um, around that would need to be. That's probably the number one is the security. Um, but yeah, I mean, we need, um, I think right now it might be conceived of as overnight storage locations, which I think might become the precursor for dispensary storefronts in the future. But I don't, I don't think that's what they're thinking of right now. I'm thinking it's probably more of a pickup location, mm-hmm. maybe for employees of the licensee to pick up the medicine and further deliver it out in that region. Um, maybe like a storage locker type thing, or maybe yeah. it'll be something at a doctor's office, or that's kind of what's going on with the applications right now is for the different applicants to propose without really knowing how it's going to play out, how they would adapt to and handle various different f- configurations of, a, of an overnight storage scenario. Yeah. And, and currently you can, um, and this changed, I, I don't know if this changed during COVID or if this is something that they always allowed, but you could pick it up at a, a doctor's office or in a medical office building. Um, what was the, what was, what was the change that happened during COVID that kind of loosened up? Yeah, they just loosened up a little bit. They allowed some pickup, I mean, curbside pickup, um, little pop-up dispensary in Houston, I think. Hmm. And, um, yeah, they started to allow a pickup in a professional building, a medical office lobby, um, and that would then reduce the, the cost to the patient than if they had it driven to their door, if they could come and meet them somewhere to pick it up. Yeah, and this becomes really important when you look at the, the statistics that actually DPS, actually they presented at one of these uh, hearings, a public safety commission hearing, if you currently have uh, less than 50,000 people, or actually it's probably less than, it's probably 20 something thousand people really legitimately that are um, in the program. Um, I think they show 50,000 as people that are, that have 
participated in the program. But if you look at the trajectory of growth over the next couple of years, just with current uh, conditions that, and without chronic pain, which we think, I think chronic pain has a really good chance of, because it's it's been tightened up as to what chronic pain is. So it's not just this wide open condition. Um, if that gets added to the program, you know, the growth could be, uh, you know, upwards of 200,000 patients. That's a giant leap. So I think what DPS and all the legislators um, that are, are looking at right now uh, is how do you how do you deal with that? Can you deal with that, you know, through the legislation? Or are we going to wait for rules? You know, how's that going to happen? Because um, that's going to be a, a very quick ramp up. And particularly you're going to have brand new companies that are going to be coming in and trying to get started up. And that'll take some time, even after they get the, uh, even if they get a license. And, and I, I want to say that currently the, the way the license application process works, so they uh, release the, the license application for those people, for the, for the people listening and, 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 um, and watching this podcast. So they know January 10th, they opened it up for people, for companies and and other entities to apply for a license to be a vertically integrated uh, medical cannabis producer for the state of Texas. And um, they're going to allow 90 days, which is April 28th, I believe is the last day when you can turn in an application, but they're not going to review those applications until session's over. So you're looking at probably June or July and then once they review those, they probably won't actually um, award a license until probably the fall is my guess. Is that, do you think that's about right? Does that sound about right? Yeah, I think so. Maybe um, July or August, maybe they would allow a award, a, well, I think they call it a provisional or a conditional license first. And then you're given a period of time to do your build out where they inspect you along the way. Do so you think they could actually award it sometime early? I think I bet you they already start reviewing it in April and May, evaluating, you know, start to grade the applications. I just don't think they're going to make any decisions until after the end of session to, so that they see if anything that happened in the legislation impacts the rules that they're going to put out or impacts their licensing decisions. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, so that's I mean that's uh, and then it, the build out's going to take probably six months to nine months, I think, is what I keep hearing from a lot of the, the folks out there. So, you know, by the first quarter of next year, they could be they could actually be providing, you know, uh, medical marijuana products to to the patients. Yeah, so, that would be my expectation. Yeah, that's a fairly short. I mean, it's not a that's not a, a terrible timeline. So, well, the. This has been great, and you've been an incredible guest today. We appreciate it. Is there anything else that we should, uh, you know, consider as as we're in the middle of session? You know, we're we're getting ready to get into the really tough part of session. We haven't uh, we haven't you know have hearings and all those kind of things that are getting ready to happen, deadlines and all that coming up. Um, anything else that we ought to be really thinking about as we're as we're kind of getting into the the meat of the session? Well, you know, Texas has been, I feel like, holding on to this kite 
digging its, you know, being pulled along with his boot heels in the sand, you know, just resisting this medical program, session after session. And if they would start to let that kite go a little bit, let it fly a little bit, um, make the program a little bit more appealing instead of keeping it so, so limited, then we could bring more people into the program and they wouldn't be, um, you know, out there on the illicit market risking their lives to, to try to get either marijuana or something else on the illicit market. Um, and so I think that if Texas would open it up a little bit more, quit hanging on to this THC condition limitation, let that be something that the physician decides, then the program would be more appealing and therefore more people would be in it and more people would be off the streets. So, Safer. Yeah. So uh, Louisiana and Florida, for example, both started off, Louisiana's program was 2015 as well. Um, they both started off extremely conservatively, extremely small, just like Texas. But they've all, they've both come along a lot more rapidly <laughs> than Texas has. We're still kind of in the same position we were years ago. Yeah. Um, one example is smoking. So, you know, as we know, Texas is anti-smoking stands, don't allow smoking of hemp, don't want to allow smoking of marijuana. And that's how Louisiana and Florida looked at it, too. And then eventually they just had to concede the point and finally allow it. It's a rapid onset delivery method that is very helpful for some conditions. And uh, Louisiana, for example, they saw a 186% patient increase in one month once they allowed the smoking. Mm -hmm. So I think that just shows the future, future outlook in Texas is if we would concede a couple of these um, prohibitionist points, um, then, you know, really open this up for people to really, really utilize um, yeah. and, and not be having to take this low THC medicine, which means they have to pack it with a lot more filler oil to get you yeah. enough medicine in that gummy than if it were a higher THC percentage. And so that's not healthy either. Yeah. Um, so I think Chase, Chase uh, described it as uh, if he, if he had to take what he needs to, to, you know, he's a, being a quadriplegic, a lot of pain and, and spasms and, and he's transitioned away from opioids, which is great. And it's using cannabis, but in order to take enough to, to actually give him a therapeutic dose, if he if if he was taking the gummies, which are allowed, it would have to be the size of a loaf of bread. So, <laughs> so, um, but I, I think those that's a that's a really it's a really good point. Um, and I think that I, I always continually remind, you know, our listeners and our viewers that we're talking about a medical cannabis program. There's nothing recreational right. in this. So. It doesn't matter what you allow inside this program, unless you are inside this program as a patient, it doesn't matter. We're not, this doesn't have anything to do with the, the people outside, but we want to keep, get those patients that are seeking their medications outside the program to come into the program where, it, where it's safe and uh, it's therapeutic. So um, great points. And again, Thanks for all of your information, your wealth of knowledge. I know you you're all over the United States talking about this, and uh, you're uh, you're you're considered the one of the best uh, attorneys in this in the in the in this whole industry, and and you have uh, you know the background from from your own personal experience that that brought you to this. So, um, 
you know, hopefully we can have you back again as session gets a little hotter. We can talk about language and um, we hope you come back and, and you'll give us some more of your time. I'd love to. Thank you for joining me today on this episode of the State House podcast. Today's show is made possible through a generous donation from my friends at Air Wellness. Air Wellness is one of the most innovative and fastest growing vertically integrated U.S. multi-state cannabis operators. The company's mission is to drive positive impact for their patients, their customers, their employees, and the communities they serve. For more information, please visit airwellness.com. That's A-Y-R wellness.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. In addition, consider subscribing on Apple and Spotify, where you can leave us a five-star review. If you're not already following us on social media, you can find those links below in the show notes. As always, thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next time.